How did the first woman on the U.S. Supreme Court change your TV viewing habits forever? What was it like to work for the world's most famous movie studio when it was just a scrappy little startup? And senior citizens are great with kids, but what kind of 90-year-old has enough energy to entertain children for hours on end? Answers to those and other questions coming up on this edition of The Off-Ramp. Hi, I'm Bob Smith, and welcome to The Off-Ramp, a place to slow down, steer clear of crazy, and take a side road to sanity. A chance to shift gears, learn some fun facts, and gain some new perspective before you have to pull back onto the expressway of life. And on a regular basis, we'll feature a potpourri of people, places, and things. Everything from trivia and celebrity interviews to some favorite guilty pleasures of mine from my collection of oddball audio files. Well, we asked some compelling questions in our introduction, and two of them are related. What was it like to work for the world's most famous movie studio when it was just a scrappy little startup? And would you trust a 90-year-old to entertain your friends? First, the 90-year-old is this guy. (laughs) Hey, everybody. It's me, Mickey Mouse. Say, you want to come inside my clubhouse? Well, of course, that is Mickey Mouse, who amazingly turned 90 recently. He's still entertaining children and adults the world over, especially at theme parks. And yes, many of you do trust that senior citizen, that 90-year-old, to entertain your kids to this day. Hence my trick question there. Mickey begat Walt Disney Studios, known today as Disney. And we're going to be hearing from one of Walt Disney's famous animators today in our program, a fellow I interviewed back in 1980 who uh, reminisces about what it was like to work for that uh, multi-billion dollar company back in the days when it was, as he called it, a lowly cartoon studio. His name is Ward Kimball, and we'll be hearing from him a little later. We will be starting out most of our off-ramp programs with something I call Trivial Matter, fascinating facts and did-you-know trivia from all over the world and all walks of life. And occasionally, my partner will be Marsha Druin-Smith, my real-life partner. Hello. Hello, Marsh. Say, Marsha and I love trivia, don't we? Well, I like Trivial Pursuit, yes, and you love all trivia. But whenever we go to a restaurant, if there's a bar or a place, they have some of those old Trivial oh, Pursuit yeah, cards. Oh, yeah, that's a great. We just, I'd love to try to beat you, and it's not easy. And we'd sit there for longer than the meal sometimes. Oh, always. They bring the bill. We just keep playing the Trivial Pursuit cards. Okay, here's one. <laughs> All right, so I've got one here. It is an interesting communications question. So you say. Uh, Okay. (laughs) Okay, which president was the first one to receive an instant message transmitted from coast to coast? Okay, I can tell this is a trick. This is, uh, you're going to go way back. Um, 
I'll say Abraham Lincoln. Oh my! How did you know? Really? Yes. Oh God! No, I really didn't know. Well, I just, <laughs> you know, I just thought what would be the most bizarre. You know, okay. people don't think of the telegraph as being, you know, the technology of the future. But the first instant message system ever built was the telegraph, and oh. he received the first coast-to-coast telegraph message from the West Coast on October twenty-fourth, eighteen sixty-one. What did it say? Hi. <laughs> hey, Abe. How's it going? That's good. <laughs> Pretty cool, really. Was there an emoji? No, there was not an emoji. Oh, okay. Marsha loves her emojis. <laughs> but with the telegraph, well, that was the first point-to-point instantaneous communication, just like texting and instant messaging today. You probably want to know who sent it, Marsh, don't you? Uh, well, See, his wife. Bring he, home milk and bread. Mary was calling. <laughs> no. Uh, Chief Justice Stephen J. Field of California sent that first instant message from San Francisco to President Lincoln in Washington, D.C., and using a line built by Western Union. Oh, that's interesting. I still like to know what it said, but okay. Okay. Well, I'm sure it was perfunctory. <laughs> or profound. Yeah. Okay. Good one, Bob. I got one now. Okay. What's the most popular recipe on the website of Campbell's Soup? Campbell's Soup. So they, they post recipes uh, on their website. Okay. What's the uh, one that's hit more than any other one? It's got to be tomato soup, or it's got to be something with chicken noodle soup, right? You mean something to do with it? Yeah. No. The most popular recipe of all time is the green bean casserole. Recently, it had 2.7 million visits during the holidays. Now, wait a minute. What does Campbell's Soup have to do with green beans? Well, if you were in the kitchen helping more, you would know. (laughs) (laughs) What? (laughs) The green bean casserole is made with mushroom soup and those crunchy little fried onion things on top. Oh, okay. Mushroom (laughs) soup. I get it. Okay. It's a staple at every Thanksgiving dinner. And the woman who invented it worked for Campbell's. Her name was Dorcas Riley. She died in 2018 at the age of 92. It was in the news. Wow. All right. Well, here's another one that was in the news. Okay. Retired Supreme Court Justice Sandra Day O'Connor, unfortunately, saying she has Alzheimer's. Mm-hmm. Here's a question about her. She was the first woman on the U.S. Supreme Court. Okay. Mm-hmm. How did the first woman on the U.S. Supreme Court change your TV viewing habits? Really? Yes. I can guarantee you, you and everyone listening has changed their TV viewing habits because of Sandra Day O'Connor. Was she the deciding vote on something that allowed 24-7 news channels? Well, you're on the right track. She made it possible for you to time shift to record and watch TV programs whenever you want to. Oh, okay. Everybody takes this for granted now, but when Sony invented the Betamax recorder, the TV studios and the movie studios went crazy. Like, what, you're going to be able to let people record off television? Yeah, we've got copyrights on all this stuff. People can't just record these shows. Well, that went to the Supreme Court with uh, Universal and Disney suing Sony. And we know now through court records that originally the court was going to favor the studios. But one vote changed that, and that was Sandra Day O'Connor. She changed the vote. She changed her vote during deliberations, and uh, the decision tipped the scales favoring Sony and you by just one vote. So thanks to the first woman on the Supreme Court, you have a whole range of products and services that now let you watch what you want to watch whenever you want to. VCRs, digital video recorders, DVDs, on-demand TV, video podcasts, Netflix, video streaming, YouTube, all those things came from that one vote from Sandra Day O'Connor. 
Well, you go, girl. So let's go watch some DVR shows and eat green bean casserole, Bob. (laughs) (laughs) Well, one more question. Okay. Who put that first woman on the U.S. Supreme Court, Sandra Day O'Connor? What president? What president? I would guess Carter Reagan. I'll say Reagan. You're right. Ronald Reagan, the first president to even nominate a woman for the Supreme Court, was Ronald Reagan. The year was 1982. Thanks, Marsh. You bet. As we mentioned earlier, Mickey Mouse recently turned 90, a real milestone in pop culture for the United States. And if you're like me, you grew up watching the Mickey Mouse Club, running home from school to make sure you could see that, and watching uh, The Wonderful World of Color on Walt Disney on NBC back in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. And then a whole new generation grew up with new Mickey Mouse Clubs, and some of our greatest actors and actresses today actually appeared on that show back in the 1980s and 90s. Disney has now become a huge, huge, multinational, diversified, mass media, and entertainment conglomerate. That's exactly how it's described by Wikipedia. Today, Disney owns the ABC Television Network, Lucasfilms, producers of Star Wars, Pixar, producer of many of those great animated films like The Incredibles and uh, Toy Story, and Marvel Studios, producers of great action films starring people such as Spider-Man. Disney also owns The Muppets, a cruise ship line, and theme parks on three continents. But once it was just a scrappy little startup, a lowly cartoon studio, as our next guest describes it. Here's the interview with Ward Kimball, Academy Award-winning Walt Disney animator from 1980. Jiminy Cricket was probably his greatest creation, but he received professional rewards for other works. An Oscar in 1954 for the first Cinemascope cartoon, Toot Whistle Plunk, and an Emmy in 1961 for a segment of Walt Disney's Man in Space series. The man is Ward Kimball, one of Walt Disney's top animators, a man who spent his entire artistic career at the Disney Studios, hired fresh out of art school. He retired to San Gabriel, California after he left Disney, but he still works as a consultant for the studio. Although his personal hobby, model railroading, takes up much of his time, he likes to remember the Disney years and what that studio was like in its most creative period, the golden years of animation, the years of Snow White and Fantasia and Pinocchio. Ward Kimball saw them all. Oddly enough, Ward Kimball was the first artist to come to Disney with a portfolio of his work. I was uh, going to Santa Barbara Art School at the time, which used to be quite a school. It's no longer in existence, but um, I figured, well, that's the way you did it. You put together a portfolio because when you went back and to get a job, which I hoped to do on the big magazines in New York, you would have a portfolio. So I assumed that you would do the same, even though it was a lowly cartoon studio. And I guess it impressed them that I would include landscapes, portraits, uh, illustrations, and so forth. And uh, Walt thought that was a good idea that everybody who applied for work should be asked to submit a portfolio. And that's what happened. 
Now, Walt Disney uh, made the Mickey Mouse film sort of as potboilers just to keep money coming into the studio, but the Silly Symphony, is, that was where the artwork went. Uh, well, of course, the, the Mickey Mouse, uh, it's very hard for people to put themselves back in, in a theater in the late 20s and early 30s and, and, and see what an impact the Mickey Mouse and Silly Symphony's had on an audience. We, we tend to lump all of the old Popeyes, Farmer, Alfalfa, Felix, and Mickey's together as period things, you know, but at the time, at the time they were, uh, uh, it was a marked contrast between what you, they had been seeing and when a Mickey Mouse came out, because here we had new gags, uh, we had stories that were well-constructed, and, and, and it was like night and day to see a Mickey or a Silly Symphony. Now, the Silly Symphonies were the first things put in Technicolor uh, of all films. That's live action, and uh, in fact, uh, they decided that uh, at the very beginning that they would go along with Technicolor at the added expense and give it that quality of color. Now, the gags were a little different. Uh, Mickey's stuff was a little more basic, uh, I call them pie-throwing gags, whereas the Silly Symphony uh, were an, an early attempt to get the quality that we later got in parts of Fantasia. You worked on Fantasia yourself with yes. uh, That was considered to be very far out in left field at the time, wasn't it? More well, or less? yes, it, it, it uh, was a bomb in the box office. Nobody came. And uh, it, it was in the red for years, fair up into the beginning of the 50s. And uh, in fact, through the 50s, it, it, uh, nobody looked at it, nobody wanted it. You described uh, Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs as the Gone with the Wind of the cartoon. It was the biggest thing, you know, it was the first feature length. It had to be. And uh, uh, if I said it that way, I meant comparing it to the, the press that the uh, anticipatory writings of uh, publicity directors uh, when Gone with the Wind came out because it was such a big, heavy book, you know. The Disney studio sank an awful lot of money into that one, too. That was one of the big, bigger risks. Well, of course, and he, we didn't have the money, and, and he couldn't get a bank loan, and, uh, and roughly speaking, the only one that would advance him the money was Giannini, the head of Bank of Italy, which was then Bank of America, uh, which changed its name. And, uh, he was the only guy that would come forth, and he seemed to 
have a lot of faith in Roth and uh, prove correct. Everybody said, well, gee, you know, a cartoon. They were still talking about a cartoon as a, a little filler with little jumpy characters going around. And uh, we all wanted to do something with a little quality. And, and everybody said, well, you can't sustain a story for an hour and a half. And he always said, you can if it's interesting enough. And another group says, cartoons are too hard on the eyes. And you get eyesore before the hour and a half's open. Well, all those things were wrong. He proved that if you had a good, solid story and you believed in it, you know, uh, uh -huh. it's sort of a naive approach to Snow White, but everybody treated it uh, not necessarily as a cartoon, but as a real thing. You indicated when you came out of art school and you went to work for, as you said, it was a lowly cartoon job, and I got the impression you might have been a little embarrassed to work for them at the time. Did you gain a lot more respect for the art of cartooning and animation? I don't think it, at the time I came there, Walt Disney was quite uh, world famous. <laughs> Seeing the uh, uh, Three Little Pigs was the inspiration that kind of made me realize that along with Father Noah's art that compared to the other studios, it was a quality operation. And uh, you must remember that nobody could get a job then. It was a terrible depression. And uh, all my friends were hopping freights and, and uh, roaming around the country as bums. And uh, you just couldn't get a job. And this was a, a solution because they were looking for artists down there and to expand, which was very unusual. So I went down there to get a job to get some money. It was very exciting because we were all young. Walt was, <clears throat> he was exactly 30 years old. I was 20. You know, it was all so new. And it was exciting because Mickey Mouse by then was world famous and being shown in even parts of China, India, and because of its pantomime, all the first pickies, you know, didn't have any dialogue in them. They were all musical. <clears throat> and it was like Chaplin. You could run them anywhere. So Mickey Mouse, by the time I came there in 1934, was just as famous as uh, Charlie Chaplin, who was, of course, uh, the king of comedy. Then. Now, you left the studio. Uh, when did you leave the studio? 1971. And I, I would imagine things had changed quite a bit in all that time. Oh, yes. Uh, that was the great thing about it. It was continuously changing. And Walt was uh, the fountainhead of ideas. And he was always stirring things up. And that's what I liked about it. Lots of times it would go against your what you'd want as an employee, but you couldn't deny that it wasn't, it wasn't exciting. And, uh, problem is when something like that stops and you go to a corporate structure, it becomes more conservative. Mm -hmm. And uh, you have a rule by committee and all the time that Walt was alive, it was a one-man decision. He made a decision. Yes or no, or give it a try. And, uh, uh, 
you, you do where you stood, because if you went to him with an idea, he would say, well, I don't think it's, we should try that this time. Or he'd say, hey, it sounds interesting. Why don't you do a treatment on it? Which is what I liked. And when you, when the thing uh, dissolves into a corporate structure where committees and people who aren't sure of themselves make the decisions, it's much easier to say no or say, well, I don't think we should because it's safer. <laughs> See, nobody has to go out on a limb. If you say yes, let's try it, boy, it's your ass if, it's, if something goes wrong. Just whistle while you work And cheerfully together we can tidy up the place So I'm a merry too It won't take long when there's a song to help you set the pace And as you sweep the room Imagine that the room is someone that I don't think animation will ever get back to that type of state of the art that you had back, say, in the late 30s, early 40s. It certainly seems to me to be much superior to what we see on, the, say, the Saturday well, morning cartoons. Well, it's all economics. Mm -hmm. First of all, it's a business. You do it to make money, right? Right. And we did it, even though Walt, more than anybody else, poured his profits back in. But it was always done to make the product better, which in turn would bring in a bigger income. And he was right. Uh, People don't just make these things uh, on a big scale to, to for laughs, unless you're a, a billionaire and <laughs> want to make a hobby out. You're doing it to make money, and, and the only way to make money uh, in times like these uh, with something that's so personal, so much based on piecework and uh, a laborious job of making these drawings is, is kind of crazy because you have to be like Hanna-Barbera and, and, and set up a system that really isn't animation. Uh, that's the only way you can cut it. And, and what happens is that it's, most of the animation you see is that uh, early Saturday morning schlock, which you can't compare to the full animation, uh, but it's a hell of a lot less expensive. Uh -huh. Do you do much art today uh, at home or anything of that nature? Oh, yes. Uh, right now I am... Uh, going in part-time as a advisor or a consultant for another arm of Disney, which is called WED, which builds the rides for Florida and Disneyland. Oh, yes. And I designed a ride for General Motors Transportation Building, which is being put up in Florida in the World Trade Center. And uh, it's sort of a tongue-in-cheek uh, history of transportation. You ride through it in cars like a haunted house. And uh, it's having the final sets and the audio animatronics put together. Uh, and I, I go in and oversee all the way from where a uh, figure turns its head to the color of a Roman chariot to the size of an Egyptian temple, you know. Well, it sounds a like it sounds quite different, but uh, it's all showbiz. <laughs> and I want to thank you very much for letting me talk to you just a little bit this morning. Why not? <laughs> I'm glad you feel that way. Okay. Ward Kimball, one of Walt Disney's top animators, a man who speaks freely and frankly about his craft. This is Bob Smith. One upon a star. 
Ward Kimball passed away in 2002 at the age of 88. But fortunately, he lived long enough to see the resurrection of Disney. As you heard us speak there, we were talking about what animation had become in the 1970s and 1980s. It was pretty substandard. A lot of things were being outsourced by cartoon studios to Asia, and the work that was coming back just didn't have a whole lot of imagination. And then computers came into the picture, and Disney seized on computer technology and ran with it, producing incredible creative animated films such as Aladdin, Beauty and the Beast, The Little Mermaid, The Lion King, and many others. Ward Kimball, in a 1978 interview, said, We thought we were always going to be 21 years old. We thought we would always be putting goldfish in the bottled drinking water, balancing cups of water on the light fixtures, changing the label on cans of sauerkraut juice. We were 21 years old. Walt was 30, leading the pack. Working at Disney was more fun than any job I could ever imagine. Here's a good question I like asking people at parties. It gets an interesting response. What's one thing most of your friends don't know about you? Now think about that for just a moment. What's one thing most of your friends don't know about you? It might be something you don't want anyone to know about, or it could be something you did as a kid or a job you had, places you've gone, maybe people you've met. For me, because I've lived in five states in my life, and most of my friends today didn't know me in my 20s, my friends don't know about all the famous people I met when I was just starting my career, people I interviewed and recorded conversations with. I was working in Iowa at a station called KDTH, and there, thanks to wonderful managers and some terrific circumstances, the town had just built a brand new civic center, I was able to meet, interview, and rub shoulders with some of the top entertainers touring in the 1970s and 80s. These interviews were conducted in airports, limousines, backstage dressing rooms, hotel suites, and by telephone. They came fast and furious over four short years, from 1978 to 1982. Here are some of the voices you'll be hearing in the weeks and months ahead on The Off-Ramp. George Burns. Certain things are funny, you know, pickles are funny. Cucumbers is a funny word. There are certain things that are funny. Schenectady. Schenectady is very funny. Oh, God. <laughs> it's real funny. Loretta Lynn. I've had people come to the shows that said, hey, I never did like country music. And uh, since I've seen Coal Miner's Daughter, you sold me on country music. Tony Randall. It was all live, the live TV. All live and in front of an audience. We had 3,000 people in the audience every week. They'd come to you in the, in the last 10 minutes and say, cut scene 42. <laughs> <laughs> you just did it. You, just, you didn't even know what they were talking about. And you just, they realized they were long and they had to cut three minutes out of the show, but they wouldn't realize it until the last 10 minutes of the show. Oh, I, it was madness. It was madness. And every show was like that. Merle Haggard. I'm not the type of person who sits down and tries to sweat out a song, you know. I've always been lucky. They've always come when I needed them. Hopefully it'll be very shortly because I have some sessions to do. 
Helen Hayes. This is about 1909 or 10. They'd set up the camera on the tripod. It was one of those hand crank cameras. The cameraman would rush out, and we actors would rush up to the door of this house and come out and be walking away from our beautiful home while they cranked us. And then that we'd get out of there just as the butler or the maid or something. <laughs> oh, you did it without permission uh, then. Oh, sure. <laughs> we stole it. We used bank buildings for our homes and all kinds of things. When we were supposed to be. Great. Noble, rich people. Hank Williams, Jr. He don't need me. He's a legend. He's an American folk hero, superstar. He's, he's like saying John Wayne, Hank Williams, you know. And uh, it was fun for a 14-year-old, but it wasn't for a 21-year-old to go out there and, and uh, clone your, your legendary father who you didn't even know. Plus, these voices. Bob Hope. I travel a lot, and I run into my old pictures, and get to study them and study my mistakes. Very few people have that chance. Clayton Moore. The only time I'm recognized when I start to talk, they say, ah. Oh, that voice. Oh, that voice. That's the Lone Ranger voice. Bobby V. I met Carol King back in the early 60s, and she wrote a number of songs for me. Uh, Take Good Care of My Baby was one of those. Ones. Right. Harry Chapin. Yes, I have been accused of writing so many songs about loneliness, but I, it's the basic human subject matter. I mean, you know, we're the only living organisms that know of our own existence. And as a corollary to that gift is the curse of loneliness. The Stadler Brothers. Yes, we saw the name on a box of facial tissues, and we liked it and said, hey, that sounds like a good name, so so was the Stadler Brothers. Victor Borga. Then there's no profession that has better stories or more hilarious incidents than the musical profession. But it's never told on the stage. The Dirt Band. We started as a jug band. Yeah, we played uh, all kinds of old dirties tunes, you know, with a few uh, bluegrass tunes thrown in there. And uh, somebody said, hey, let's put this little group together and go play at this coffee house for fun. Rich Little. Nixon never knew what I was doing. I mean, when I shook my jowls and said, uh, let me say this about that. I want to make this perfectly clear. He just said to Pat, why is that young man speaking in that strange way? Mel Tillis. People don't, don't, uh... I uh, knew if I'm a singer or if I'm a uh, comedian, you know, because I love to do uh, uh, both of them. Wolfman Jack. I used to have that name Bob Smith just like you got. And uh, it was so corny I had to change it. <laughs> Why would a person with a perfectly good name like Bob Smith change it to Wolfman Jack? Alan Freed, you know, in New York City on WINS. <laughs> he started out and he called himself Moondog, you know. Anyway, he was the man who coined the phrase rock and roll. And he's who I grew up listening to. Well, that's it. Gee, I hope you'll join me in the coming weeks and months ahead as we play those interviews and many, many other fun things here on The Off-Ramp. But right now, looks like it's time to get back on the expressway of life and maybe get into the fast lane. This is Bob Smith. I hope you'll join me next time on The Off-Ramp. The Off-Ramp is produced in association with CPL Radio and the Cedarburg Public Library, Cedarburg, Wisconsin. This is Bob Smith.